You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 73 for our Old Testament reading this morning. Give me a moment to turn there as well. It's on uh, page 485 in the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. We have ones for you in the back. This morning, I'm going to read through Psalm 73 for us uh, and then uh, briefly comment on this psalm. It's related in, in very many significant ways to the passage we're looking at in 2 Thessalonians. Uh, this morning. So when I'm done with this reading, don't turn right away to 2 Thessalonians. Stay on this page for just a minute. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word this morning from Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs in death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is the word of the Lord. When we look at this psalm, we're reminded of an age-old question. Why do bad things 
happen to good people? Why is it the case that some of the most godly people that I know are the people who are faced with the most earthly suffering and sorrow? Now, of course, we can ask the question, what do you mean by good people? The Bible tells us that no one is good. But I don't think we should be so quick to think that that answers the entire problem. It answers the question partly, but we do see in scripture the reality that the righteous suffer. Didn't Job suffer because he was righteous? Did not many people in scripture who are presented to us as examples of godliness suffer many things? Paul and the apostles? And did not Jesus, the sinless son of God, suffer at the hands of wicked and evil men? It is evident in the scriptures that the righteous do suffer. Why? There's also a flip side to that question. It's not only why do bad things happen to good people, but also why do good things happen to bad people? Why do corrupt men and women who abuse other people for gain, who mock and scoff at God, sometimes live luxurious, comfortable, easy, healthy lives? Doesn't it feel like God's justice has failed? If God is good, and loving, and just, why do the good suffer? Why do the wicked prosper? And these aren't questions that people ask only today. Again, these are, question, this is, these are questions that have been asked throughout the ages. And actually, many of the Psalms deal with these questions. And what we just read in Psalm 73, we see that a man named Asaph wrestled with the reality of the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. He wondered if it was all in vain that he had sought to keep himself pure and to be innocent because he was stricken all the day long, while those who mocked God and oppressed others lived in prosperity. Why live for God if it only makes your life harder? And isn't God being unjust? But then I love in Psalm 73 that there is an answer to this question. Asaph shows us in his psalm the key of understanding in verses 16 and 17. Asaph revealed the key. He said, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Okay, he is admitting this is a hard thing to wrestle with. It's a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. The answer was not to be found by only looking at the present state of affairs. The answer was found in looking to the future, in going into the presence of God and discerning the end of all of these things. Asaph was invited to have a heavenly, eternal perspective on life. And with that perspective, he was able to see that although the wicked enjoy present prosperity, verses 1 through 12, their future would be ruin and judgment, verses 18 through 20. And while Asaph suffered present affliction, verses 13 through 15, his future would be glory in the presence of God, 24 through 26. 
Too often we forget to view our lives and to view the world around us with the heavenly, eternal perspective. And when we fail to live by that perspective, it's easy for suffering and sorrow and affliction and the general fallen nature of ourselves and our world to cause discouragement for us, to cause despair, to cause us to question God and his justice and his love. And Paul confronts that same question for the church in Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians. So we saw last last week in our introduction to this letter, they were a young church, baby, brand new Christians. And their existence from day one as a church had been in the context of opposition and persecution. And Paul knew for these young Christians that there would be a temptation to ask, has God abandoned us? Have his promises failed? Why keep living for Christ if all it means is suffering and persecution? And Paul's goal here at the beginning of 2 Thessalonians is to encourage the church to grow in the Christian life of faith, love, and hope, even in the midst of affliction, by looking not only to the present, but looking forward to the return of Jesus. His goal is to lift their eyes up and forward above the wind, above the waves and the storm, to see their lives and their future in light of a heavenly, eternal perspective in the return of Jesus. So you can turn with me now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. This morning, you get two sermons for the price of one, right? Mini sermon on Psalm 43, and now a sermon on 2 Thessalonians. But don't worry. Actually, it's just good to spend time in God's word, so don't complain. All right, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word from the New Testament this morning. I'm going to start for us in chapter 1, verse 3 even though we'll be looking at 5 through 12. Again, as I pointed out last week, verse 4 doesn't end in a period. It ends in a comma, one long sentence that goes from verse 3 through verse 10. Uh, So to get the context of what we're going to see in our passage this week, I'm going to start up a couple verses earlier in 3. So again, pay attention this morning to the reading of God's word. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. Because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we boast about you in the churches of God, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions, and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit this morning to make the reading of your word and the preaching of your word effective in convincing and converting lost sinners and building us up through holiness and comfort, through faith, under the salvation that is promised for us when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ returns. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, as I've already mentioned, we saw that Paul sought to motivate the Christians in Thessalonica in the midst of their affliction by pointing them to the return of Jesus. And this week, Paul continues that same thought, and we're going to flesh out more of what it is about the return of Jesus that is meant to motivate Christians now in lives of affliction and suffering. So the big idea for us this week in 2 Thessalonians 1 is that we can endure present affliction. We can endure present affliction in light of judgment and glory at the return of Jesus. We can endure present affliction in light of judgment and glory at the return of Jesus. So let's dive right into the text this morning. Look with me to verse five. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Okay, what? What is evidence? What is the that that he's pointing to here? It's what he was just talking about in verse four. Again, remember, he's continuing his thought. Your endurance of persecution and affliction, your steadfastness is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Now, if you think about this for a moment, it might be counterintuitive for us. Doesn't our present affliction and suffering right now mean that God is unjust? How can our endurance of suffering point, in fact, to the righteous judgment of God, to point to the fact that he is just, that he is righteous? Well, this can be the case because the present state of affairs in our world now is not the eternal state of affairs. Our present state now is a a signpost or an evidence or a proof that this is not how things always will be. The purpose here is to point believers to a future that is sure. You are enduring affliction now because God is just and he will set things right on the day of judgment when he 
returns. And that's how he continues his argument in verse 6. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, since indeed God considers it just. That's the same Greek root as the word righteous from righteous judgment. God considers it just or righteous to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. He points them out to the justice of God manifested in the future in two drastically different future realities for two different groups of people. Different realities for those who afflict God's people and for God's people who are afflicted. And our two main points this morning are going to look at these two different futures and how they encourage Christians now to press on, to endure. So only two points this morning. So there might be a chance that you will get lunch today. Although we did have a bonus sermon beforehand. Our first main point is that the return of Jesus will bring judgment upon those who afflict his people. The return of Jesus will bring judgment upon those who afflict his people. That's the first group of people Paul deals with in verse 6. Again, he starts, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Paul wants them to know that God's justice hasn't failed. Even though in their present situation, it seems that God is doing nothing about their suffering, Paul points them to a future to see and to show them that God will do something about it. God does care about what they are going through. God will, in his timing, bring justice upon those who afflict his people. And this text highlights how this justice is perfect justice. Notice that the afflictors are repaid with affliction. The point here is that their punishment is appropriate. It is just. They receive back on themselves what they dished out to other people. And we see this as a principle throughout scripture. One good example is at the beginning of the book of Judges. When the tribe of Judah is conquering the promised land, they're continuing their conquest of Canaan. They go up in battle against a king named Adani Bezek. And they fight against him and against his armies. And he flees and they chase him down. This might sound a little bit brutal at first. It says, Adani Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And you might be saying, why on earth would they cut off the thumbs and the big toes of this king? But then we find out in verse 7, by the words of this king himself, and Adani Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. He was the one, the king who had 70 kings picking up scraps under his table with their thumbs and their toes cut off. And he recognized, even this wicked king, God was just. God was just to give me what I had given others. Okay? And that's what's going on here. 
It is those who have afflicted others who are repaid with affliction themselves. And this passage then continues by describing the vengeance of Jesus against his enemies in very vivid terms. Paul doesn't beat around the bush here. And I'm very thankful for Paul's clear and frank language about Jesus and his judgment upon his enemies. He says that this affliction will come upon afflictors when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. These verses remind us that Jesus is not only described as a meek and humble lamb, but also as a powerful lion. That Jesus is not only the suffering servant, but also the conquering king. The imagery here is of Jesus leading a flaming, fiery army of angels down out of heaven against his enemies. It's a description that is often used of God in the Old Testament. A name given to God is that he is the Lord of hosts, which means that God is the God of angel armies. It is, uh, signifies his power and his strength to win in battle, to be victorious over his enemies. And that language is used of Jesus. Jesus is that God. Jesus is that divine warrior who will come. And we see similar language like this throughout the New Testament. In places like Revelation 19, which speaks of Jesus' return like this. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on that that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with the rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Does that picture of Jesus resonate with the way that you usually think about him? Because if we're going to have a truly biblical picture of Jesus, this needs to be a part of it. That he is a victorious king, a conquering and just judge. And this description of Jesus and the judgment that he brings when he returns should have three effects on us. The first is just worship. We should worship this great and powerful and mighty savior. Second, it should be a warning to us. This passage is clear that although it may work out for you in this life, being an enemy of Jesus only ever has one outcome. At the return of Jesus, if you do not know God, and if you do not obey the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. And then verse 9 shows you that the outcome is suffering, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. An eternal existence away from the loving presence of our God, only ever knowing his judgment and his wrath. This is a reminder to not take Jesus lightly, okay? Do not take the gospel lightly. It is a matter of eternity, a matter of life and death, of joy and sorrow. The gospel is not something to treat like a hobby, like a lifestyle choice, like a therapeutic add-on that just makes your life better. We need to take a long and serious look at our hearts and a long and serious look at Jesus and the gospel and ask ourselves, do I really know God? Do I believe in the gospel? This isn't something to be trifled around with. But all this, this passage drives us to worship and it's a warning for us. The primary purpose of this description in 2 Thessalonians 1 is not to be a warning. Its primary purpose is to be a comfort. It's meant in its context to comfort afflicted and persecuted Christians. It's a reminder to them and a reminder to us that Jesus' justice will prevail. That the afflictors will receive exactly what they deserve, not more, not less. And that the afflicted ones will receive rest and refreshment and relief from our God. Just for a moment, imagine the picture in your mind of a massively corrupt justice system. Probably not something that's super hard to imagine, right? A system that is easily abused, where corrupt people are enabled to abuse and use other people, destroying life after life with absolutely no justice and no accountability. We see things like that in our world, don't we? And when we see that, we ought to feel angry, right? We ought to have a desire that justice would be done. We ought to be sickened by justice being abused in our world. But when we look at God, we often don't like to talk about his punishment, about the justice that will come upon those who do not believe and upon those who afflict God's people. But we're furious when people in our justice system do uh, get away uh, with doing evil things and don't get what they deserve. We ought to delight in the justice of God. We ought to long for the justice of God. Paul is reminding these persecuted believers that even though in the present age it seems like God's justice is failing, and God's justice is absent, that God has not forgotten them in their suffering and in their affliction, that his justice will prevail. And it may be hard, I think, for us to understand why this brings comfort, because we often live in such comfortable lives and in such a comfortable world, even though things are sometimes uncomfortable for me and for you, but I want you to imagine for a moment what this passage would mean for an imprisoned Christian 
who has been separated from his family and locked away unjustly because of his belief in Jesus Christ. Imagine what this would mean to a young persecuted church in Thessalonica who've already seen leaders arrested, who are enduring affliction at the hands of ungodly men to say, God has not forgotten you. Imagine what this would mean for a Christian whose family has been killed for their faith, that Jesus will not fail his people. So we first see that the return of Jesus brings judgment on those who, are, those who afflict his people, and that this is meant to comfort us. But then second, Paul encourages the Thessalonians to endure affliction in light of the fact that the return of Jesus will bring glory for believers, for those who believe, or glory for believers. The return of Jesus will bring glory for those who believe. That's the second group of people that Paul addresses in verse, verse six. He says that God will bring affliction on the afflictors and rest for the afflicted, right? He will bring relief for those who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus returns. In your own seasons of hardship and suffering, don't you long for rest? And don't you long for relief? Students who are in the middle of finals week long for Saturday, right? They long for that day to come when they will have no more laborious studying, no more flashcards to pour over, no more all-nighters, a day when you can sleep in on that Saturday and wake up and take a walk in a park without any weight on your shoulders from those exams and from all of those papers. Now, how much more do those who suffer affliction, whether for weeks or for months or years or lifetimes, Long for the relief and the rest that is promised when Jesus returns. But what's particularly beautiful about this passage is that it describes the future for afflicted believers as more than just a lack of affliction, as more than just hardship being taken away. Look at verses 10 through 12 for me, uh, with me here. Verses 10 through 12, our future here is not described as merely a lack of something bad, but as positively possessing and enjoying something that is so good that we can hardly conceptualize it now. Verse 10, all these things will take place when he, when Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. The greatest possible future motivation for the Christian life now is that no matter what wickedness, affliction, or hardship you suffer in this life, you will forever behold and marvel at the beauty and glory of our God. You know what it's like to marvel at earthly things, to stand in dumbstruck awe looking at the stars or the majesty of a mountain range, to feel the power of a thunderstorm, to hear the beauty of a song. 
The biggest thing I look forward to every single year at the air show at EAA is for the fighter jets to have them streak across the sky right in front of you with full afterburner to have your whole body shake and tremble as you literally feel these planes fly by more than you even hear them, right? And there's this awe and wonder at something so powerful, so fast and so complex and amazing. And we can endure now knowing that forever we will enjoy marveling at the God who created the stars, the God who raised the mountains, the God who rides on the storm clouds and shakes the earth with his voice in the thunderclap, and the God who is also gracious and kind and loving, a God who welcomes us into his fellowship to behold his glory and to marvel at him for all eternity. There is no greater joy to look forward to than that. But not only do we get to behold God's glory, we are wrapped up in the glory of God. Verse 12 points us to the end goal of all of this, right? The end goal of suffering, of affliction, of the Christian life, faith, love, hope. What is it driving to? That the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Don't skip over that line. The name of our Lord Jesus may be, may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love how Kelvin describes this verse. The quote is printed on the front of your worship guide if you wanted to read along or save it for later. Kelvin comments on this verse by saying, speaking of those who are afflicted, he says, for they are now exposed to the reproaches of the world and are looked upon as vile and worthless. But then they will be precious and full of dignity when Christ will pour forth his glory upon them. The end of this is that the pious may, as it were, with closed eyes, pursue the brief journey of this earthly life, having their minds always intent upon the future manifestation of Christ's kingdom. Just think of the reversal that will happen at the return of our Lord Jesus. That the most extravagant life now of the enemies of God will be equally matched by their, low, by their lowness in the judgment to come. And that conversely, the most pitiful, tortured, maimed and weak, imprisoned believer now, will then on that day, in their glorification, behold and reflect a glory which is currently beyond the capacity of our minds to even comprehend. What an incredible reversal. And what an incredible hope for those who are lowly and beaten down now to know that it is glory that awaits them. And just as we ought to take the judgment of Jesus seriously, we should take the promise of glory seriously. Which future is yours when Jesus returns? Now, with the first a quick reading of this passage, you might be frightened right away. 
You might think, oh no, what if I'm not worthy of this coming kingdom? We see that language twice in the passage. First in verse 5, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. And then again in verse 11, that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Is this passage teaching us that our only hope is that we will get this future by our own merits, by our works, by being worthy of the kingdom of God? No. This passage actually shows us two different things that we need to be able to keep separate to understand correctly. The first is how to possess this future hope. Like, how does this future hope become ours? And the second is how we become fit or ready for this future hope. So how do we possess it? And how do we become ready for it? And I'll end with these two things this morning. First, how to possess this future hope. How does this become yours? These promises, this hope at the return of Jesus. And it's not because we're worthy, because we're not. We have to remember, I think, who is writing this letter. This letter is from Paul. Now, think for a moment about the history of Paul's life. Why might it be significant that it's Paul that is writing about the future for those who have persecuted the people of God and the future for those who are receiving persecution? Paul, the chief of sinners, the man who himself persecuted the church of God, is now comforting these believers, knowing that their persecution will one day end. Paul knew that he himself was unworthy of the kingdom of God, that he was one of those people that deserved to suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, even as we are. But who is it in this passage that then marvels at the glory of God in verse 10? Who is it? All those who believe. And what is it that they believe? They believe our testimony to you. The gospel message that Paul had brought to the Thessalonians was believed. And it is by that belief that they become heirs of the glory that is to come. They became possessors by faith of the hope of Jesus Christ that was offered to them in the gospel message that had been proclaimed. God is just to punish sinners, but God is also just to reconcile and justify sinners through faith in the gospel. And the heart of this gospel message that Paul proclaimed to them as he proclaimed throughout the Roman Empire is that the punishment that we deserve as the enemies of God and his people have been poured out on Jesus instead. The end times when Jesus returns, judgment of God no longer remains for us because that future judgment has already been poured out in the past upon Jesus. There no longer remains wrath against your sin if you are in Christ. And we are counted worthy only because the worthiness of Jesus has been given to us. That is the great exchange of the gospel. 
our sins upon him, the judgment of God on our behalf upon him, his righteousness upon us, that God's righteous judgment has already been declared for those who believe. This passage shows us how to possess this future hope through faith in Jesus Christ in the gospel, but it also shows us how to become fit for this future hope, how to become ready for this future hope. And that's actually the main point of the language of being counted worthy in this passage. It's not saying you possess this hope, you possess salvation by being worthy, but that God is making you worthy in your sanctification, that God is making you ready for heaven. He is making you fit to behold God's glory. Look at verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you, not that you are worthy, that God would make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every good every work of faith by his power. We are shaped throughout our lives, through our sanctification by the power of God and his spirit to be ready for glory. And one of the primary ways that God sanctifies us and makes us ready for glory is through suffering, right? And that's why he goes there. Paul is encouraging this young church these baby believers, to persevere, to press on through their suffering and affliction because their endurance of suffering is preparing them for the glory that is to be revealed. So for you, weak and weary Christian, press on. Press on through your suffering. God is making you ready for eternity. Keep your eyes up and keep your eyes out and live in light of Jesus' return. And I'll end with what Paul reminded the Corinthian church of in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul wrote to them, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison 